Hello, Heal listeners. Welcome to season seven. Before we dive into our regular format, the first few episodes of this season are a special three-part series I call The Dad Sessions. I highly recommend you start with part one and listen to them sequentially if you haven't already. Just two weeks after my father's death, Kendra and I sat down and began recording my experience of his diagnosis, the three and a half weeks being with him as he died, and his death, and the new very challenging world of grief I've experienced since. A few days before his passing, I was alone with my dad as he slept. In a moment, he came to and said very clearly, tell them what happened. It was not angry or challenging, more matter of fact, like it just needs to be so. So here we are telling you what happened. I'd also recorded some conversations with my dad the few weeks before he died, and we will be including some of those clips here. You'll get to hear his voice, my own, my sister's, and that of my mother. It is an honor to include him here in these episodes and have his voice heard and his perspective known as he faced the final days of his own life. After all, this is ultimately about him. He should have a say. I have a feeling I'll know it. But since we have this opportunity, (laughs) you said something yesterday about We'll find places to meet. Mm. Got any ideas? (laughs) (laughs) Where I should look for you? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's it's just a lot like you and me. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks for giving me such a great life. You got your job done. Um, I can't thank you enough for the profound gift that you are and have been in my life. With, with every interaction over, the, over our years together, Yeah. Couldn't ask for anything more. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yep. Greatest gifts in life. It is. Friendships and our first level family relationships. Yeah. Yeah. All the rest of it is just stuff. Welcome to Heal. Today we conclude the dad sessions with the third and final conversation about grief and life after death. Recorded five months to the week after my dad passed, Kendra interviews me about what I have discovered about myself, about death, and about how we as a society have no script to follow in such a challenging experience that we all will have. I share not just about the darkness, but also the light and the surprising best part of being with the new reality of losing my father to cancer. Today, I'm your guest, Dr. Sarah Marshall.
I think, you know, that's a good segue to talk about the final phase of this. The phase that's so new to me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So what have you learned about death? One of the two biggest events of our life. And I've been walking around like it doesn't exist. So there is a new interest. I want to finish the Tibetan book of living and dying. There's more things I want to learn about. There's more conversations I want to have. It is really fresh. So it's like hard to put much, but there's this, you know, there was this unwinding experience of his existence, of his personness, his energy that happened over days, not in a moment. I don't think that's conceptual. I think that's real. Yeah. You know, they took his body and for a while going back into the bedroom was a way to connect. It was like, I could feel it. There also, there was this insane experience pretty much from more or less the diagnosis from a couple of days before to the point of his death, that's like an arrowhead. It was like the energy was broad and wide in general and the same amount of energy in the same space just got pressurized and concentrated and pressurized and concentrated down to one spot. Like if somebody had said, okay, I want you to stare at a single spot on the wall every waking minute for eight days, I'm certain I couldn't do that. But that's literally what we did. We, we like all of our focus and attention was into this single spot. Right. And for the first two hours after he died, his body was still there. And then it wasn't. And it was like this absence. And then in the weird way the world works, his hospital bed was rented. So they took it away because that's what you do. And it was like everything that would change in the room felt a part of me felt like I was losing more and more of my connection. I have not yet been willing, I'll put it that way, to experience the dad is everywhere, always. I can connect with him wherever I am. I'm open to that being a reality at some point in my future. Right now, I'm like, nope, he's dead. I was struck by the reality that without a core religion, there was no script. There was no, this is how we do it at a level that there's a lot of opportunity in that. And we did a lot of creating on our own, but it also was weird to have to generate ritual and generate how do we want to do this in the shock of him dying at the same time. None of us left the house much. For about a week. I am grateful for the little bit of just framework. I'm not even attached to this. It's just the one I knew from the Buddhist traditions. There's a practice. It's not a practice, actually. I can barely speak about this intelligently because I don't really know much about it, but they talk about the bardos are the tramp, like the space between. And when a human dies, their soul goes through the bardos and it's this process. I, that's literally now everything I know about it, except that it's 49 days after death. And it's like, I'm just grateful to have even that to think about. 
seven weeks of seven days. And I watched my instincts to placate, to be busy, to go back to normal life, to smooth over, rush in even three days after he died. And so I just made up in my head, I was going to give myself a week. And fortunately I'd kind of set up like I wasn't working until June 1st. And so I actually had a full week and then I've kind of now given myself the Bardos as well, like seven weeks to just be with this. Well, we said I was in the process of seven weeks to just be with us for four and a half months. So we decided to keep the first few minutes of the last conversation we were having. And that's right when Kendra's internet went out and we'd already been talking for two and a half hours. And I was only two, just a few weeks away from when dad died. So it actually, I feel like the universe knew better. (laughs) and intervened yep I remember texting you a few minutes after it came back on and was like I can hop on you were like nope let's wait (laughs) I'm really glad we did (laughs) yes I have a here we are four months later yeah months later from the last time we started this conversation different I don't know that it's better but I have a different perspective that I can share from now than I would have if we'd kept going so Here we are. Now it was actually five months ago on Saturday that dad died. And how are you feeling? Definitely some things are different than the first couple months. The acute acuteness of it is not there. So like right now, I notice mostly I can keep an experience of grief at bay. And then there's all these other experiences happening that I'm kind of like, well, is that grief or is that just my life? Maybe this is just how I am. Maybe I've always been this way. Am I clinically depressed? Wait, maybe that's grief. So there's a lot of like questioning. There's one of the surprises. I don't know. It seems surprising when it happens to me, but then when I look back and if somebody else said it to me, I'd be like, that makes really logical sense is like my confidence has been rocked. I notice a lot of self-doubt about even my career, what I'm doing, how my life is, lots of questioning. And I fortunately do have really great support. I have actually did hire a therapist and I have my life coach and some amazing people in my life who are varying different levels of a step ahead of me. One of my best girlfriends, her father died in November of 2021 and my dad died in May of 2022. So she's been like nine months ahead of me through this whole process, which has been, or six months, I guess. And then one of my other very best friends, her mother passed away a year ago, August. So like there's a few people around me who've lost parents recently that that's been really helpful to just quite frankly, see some hope, like what it might be like. But I I notice the obviousness of, oh, what I'm dealing with is the grief of dad's death is, is fuzzier than it was before. And I watch myself question a lot of things. 
you know, but I could definitely probably should give myself the grace of just assuming most of what I'm dealing with right now falls under the giant umbrella of yes. And you're still grieving. And that kind of ties us back into where we left off a little bit when we started having this conversation last time, which is that you were saying without a really, you know, core religion that there's no script to how to process death or how to grieve. And as a culture, we don't have really a clear practice for grief either. Well, I so you think kind of left it on culture, this, like, I don't yeah. know what's going to happen. Yeah. So and and it culturally that. is like, I'm going to sum it up. There's lots of different variations, but a lot of culturally is get on with it. <laughs> Pretend it's not happening. Numb. Drink. That's a big one. I've actually, yeah. I mean, I've always just been a social engager in alcohol and that is greatly reduced. That has been like not helpful. I will feel so much worse the next day. It is one of the best ways to make sure I have a crap day is to drink the night before. So I guess I'm fortunate in that that doesn't even occur to me. Like some of those things I can see people slide into. I will admit I could totally have taken stock in a couple ice cream companies would be making some money right now. But even that has like, that's been a big place of grief. So like coming from the, there's no really... And I don't know, I make up that a thousand years ago, we had a better way of doing this or a different way of doing this. That might not be true. I don't know. I don't viscerally immediately know what it was like. So all I can say is right now, you know, and I, and I've definitely asked a lot of friends and people around me what it's like for them. And that's an interesting game because sometimes that's really helpful. And sometimes it makes me want to scream. Like one of the best resources somebody sent me is the TED Talk by, I may not quite pronounce her last name right, but Nora McInerney. And she has a podcast that is also a live touring show called Terrible. Thanks for asking. And literally did not know this was going to become her career, but her life's work has been talking to people about the worst days of their life, the worst things that have happened to them. And she went through loss of a child and her father dying in a very short period of time and you know got a double wallop of grief like in like a month of each other and one of the things that she would talk about in her TED talk that just totally hit home for me was you know some of the things that people would say that you're just like ah! for her it was people talking about like her moving on. Oh, I said that wrong. It was the loss of her husband. Her husband died and her father died very close to each other. And she's remarried. And inside of the remarriage, it was even like, oh, good. You're okay now. And she's like, no, my husband still died. And I'm also married to this amazing man and have this life. And so for me, it's not really been about that because it's not a spouse with dad dying, but some of the things that have been hard for me, maybe they would make a difference for somebody else. But for me has been when someone's like, well, he's still here. You you're, he's still with you. And honest to God, I mean, I do have a spiritual sense that, that I can connect to something that is my dad and the essence. But I mean, even still right now, I, I mean, just to be totally frank, I'm just like a fuck, you know, my dad died. I do not get to go bike yeah. riding with him. I do not get to go sailing with him. I do not get to have those like, I mean, 
And I was thinking about having this conversation. I'm going to do my best to like have this be a vulnerable, but also useful conversation. Cause I also could cry for the next 45 minutes inside of it. But like, I mean, at five months out, like, it's just like, no, I've never gone five months without talking to him ever in my entire life. It's the first time ever. And it's like, he's not here. Yeah, it's not the same. Nope. And I do hope and I even get that I'm a powerful creator and I can create some ways I will connect to him. And right now that has, it's been, I've been way more present to the not than the is. I want to circle back to a point that you said, which is that like, if anything, culturally around grief, like we don't have a script, but there's this pressure to, like you said, to move on. And I think that only people who have not experienced grief can even view that as a goal. Because for anybody who I know, including myself, that has experienced any sort of loss or grief, you don't want to move on. Like you don't want to forget. And so when people are like pushing you, it feels often that they're doing that because it's for their, like they're uncomfortable because of your grief. Not that you're uncomfortable because of your grief. And I saw this graphic on social media, which was kind of like an illustration of a ball. And it was like, this is how people think time and grief relate. And it was kind of like this ball in a circle. And over time, the ball inside the circle got smaller. And I was like, but really grief kind of stays the same size, but like life grows around it. And then in the second version, the ball inside stayed the same size, but the outer circle got bigger. And it's... It's interesting to hear you say that because it's not, I mean, there's no, they don't compare and they don't need to because grief doesn't have to be comparable. But after I had my miscarriage, it was very much like, oh, like, but you can still get pregnant or isn't, aren't you so glad it happened now instead of later? Like all these insensitive comments that were like people trying to make me feel better. But really all I wanted was like someone to validate my feelings And tell me that it was like made sense that I felt the way that I felt and that it was normal to be sad. And I don't, I mean, and and so I'm curious, like how that is for you. Like, are you, like, how are you feeling about your grief? Good question. Right now, five months out, and this just happened. And it's interesting because my mom and I were talking this morning about like one of our we actively checked in with each other. My mom and I, I mean, my mom and dad were two of my, are two of my best friends. And one of the things mom and I talked about is like grieving together probably isn't going to be great for either one of us. It's like, I have all my pain and then I see her pain and then I want to fix her pain, but then I really can't because I'm like, not the person. It's like we both, and, and we've done an amazing job at sourcing support from friends outside So what's interesting, though, is she also echoed this in her own way. But for me is like just recently, like last week, maybe two weeks ago, maybe I feel like I've turned a corner. Something has shifted. I'm actually sick and tired of feeling like crap. I don't want to be miserable anymore. And and even though the pain was so intense, like there are some experiences of acute grief that I can literally say is like, like there were six or seven times that I remember where like the world, it didn't matter if I was about to get on a call with a client. It didn't matter what I thought I was going to do. 
I would just get overtaken by like sobbing. This is one of the places I am grateful that I live alone. It was, it's not been awesome that I live alone through this process. It's been interesting that this is my sacred contract to have moved to New York to be with my dad and have my dad die and then be like living in this house by myself and have had a lot of solitary alone time to be with all of this, which I wouldn't necessarily have written it that way if I could have designed it. And I think it's it's been good. And one of the things that was convenient is when I would have these like shrill, shrieking, sobbing experiences of like getting taken to my knees, literally down on the ground, sobbing into the carpet. That doesn't happen so much anymore. <laughs> um, it could. I probably could still go there from time to time, but I have a like degree of choice and control now. And I, I've been struggling with the idea of creating anything in the future new. And, and in these last two weeks, what's been right there for me is I've noticed how much time I've spent dwelling in the past about all kinds of things not relating to my dad, about moving from Salt Lake City to New York, about my career path, about past relationships. But I've just watched myself think about, ruminate about, worry about, regret about, and go over the past a lot. And I was actually in a meditation session with myself last week and it like kind of struck me that it'll get me. My dad's in the past and he's not in the future. And I don't want to look at the future. I don't want to deal with that reality, you know, that like even stuff we didn't do together, even stuff, a part of my life that has nothing to do with him. Like it's just, but I can feel that I'm upset about it and that I'm even articulating it is this like turning towards something. And there's a want for happiness and for joy that I quite frankly, not that long ago was like, screw you and the white horse you rode in on. There will be no joy. There'll be no happiness. It's not appropriate. It's not what I, it's not even what I want to feel right now. It, it feels faking it, you know, but I actually, you know, so how I am about my grief right now is it's controllable. Good news, bad news. I can make choice about it. And I'm just barely in this next inquiry of at this point in time, maybe being happy is a choice that I actually have on the menu. I don't have to order it, but I can. And that I'm starting to look at what my access points are to that. And there is a place of like, yeah, five months of being miserable and depressed is a lot. And I'm kind of ready for it to be different. I'm also aware that lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of people have said it. there's something particularly significant about the first year. And people talk about all the firsts, getting through all the firsts and the challenges. And I will say, you know, I've been reading Brene Brown's book, Atlas of the Heart, and it is essentially this like dictionary. I mean, it's not, but it she, she goes through 85 or 87 emotions or emotional states. And there's a whole chapter on you know, where we go when we're hurting that includes sadness and despair and grief. And I'm actually going to read this quote because it's just so worth it. She actually quotes David Kessler in his book, Unlocking Us, in her book, Brene Brown, Anatomy of the Heart. And she quotes David Kessler as saying, 
Each person's grief is as unique as their fingerprint. But what everyone has in common is that no matter how they grieve, they share a need for their grief to be witnessed. That doesn't mean needing someone to try to lessen it or reframe it for them. The need is for someone to be fully present to the magnitude of their loss without trying to point out the silver lining. And I think that's what you and I are both talking to in those places where, you know, pointing out the silver lining. And then I've also equally had people pointing out the black lining where many people have said to me, well, you'll never stop grieving. You'll always grieve your dad. My dad died 26 years ago and I still miss him. And I like also get that they're trying to acknowledge something, but I'm like, not helpful, not fucking helpful. Like I am in the midst of being consumed by this. I don't want to know that I have a 26 year future of this ahead of me. Now, more and more people are like, it does change. It changed shape. Like, yeah, 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 I get it. But it's this whole like, not the past, not the future right now. I can just deal with right now. And I would say that, at the five month mark, whatever that means. And I do tend to be somebody who's like, give me a structure. I want goals. I want goalposts. So what is going to happen at six months and then seven months? Yeah, it's dangerous. But it seems like at this moment in time at five months, there is something that feels distinct where there is an interest in happiness and joy and actually thinking towards a future and creating and not being quite as enmeshed in the grief process. Although I think it still is the grief process and I think this is a different flavor or shape or color of it. Yeah. And and so how has this process shaped you? How are you different? What's different about you now compared to before you experienced your father's death? Man, there's been so many spaces in that. Like, you know, there's there's so many different aspects or layers or components to this. It's like, I don't know, maybe the analogy is like looking at a diamond and there's all the different facets and windows you can look through because there's, I, I and this is a heart, like we've been saying this throughout this little mini series about dad is like the lack of language to describe our experience through it. Like I'm going to do my best to, to put language to some things, but it, it's just so limited. But one of them is that I miss dad. That's its own topic. And not having him around to talk to, not even just, you know, just even like not having the opportunity, the possibility of talking to him or doing things with him, you know, that's that's one unit. And I would actually say my experience is that that's been one of the smallest challenges through all of this. And then there's like, who I am as a person is not the same. I was the daughter of Robert Rupenthal and there was this relationship that was there. And in some of the other transformational work I've done, we talk a lot about like, who are we? What makes up who we really are? And and we tend to think of ourselves as a person with a body and a personality. Some people would say to actually consider that who you are is given by the relationships you're in and how they see you like that they see you a particular way like it's a little bit of that that cart and a horse like are you a mom because you're a mom or are you a mom because your child is there who sees you as a mom and they relate to you as a mom where's your momness live 
Is it just simply always there no matter what? And some places the momness is. So like, yes, I'm still a daughter. And yes, I'm still Robert Rupenthal's daughter. But I'm not Robert Rupenthal's daughter with Robert who's alive. That yeah. that's, that actually died with him. That is no... And, and to articulate what it is that's different about me is really hard to do right now. But I can I can feel a difference. I can feel this is one of those... I will go back, you know, 10 years from now, I can look back and be like before dad died and after dad died, like this is going to be one of those. And there's some aspects even, and I, I do find that going and looking at big themes throughout humanity is helpful and archetypes are helpful. And there's a thing that we've said for a long time, which is the king is dead, long live the king. And there is something distinct about a father's death versus a mother's death. And a father's death for a son and a father's death for a daughter or however you identify inside of the continuum of your relationship doesn't, you know, it's not, this isn't a gender conversation, it's just a relationship conversation, you know, as the child of. And being daddy's little girl, that actually is pretty much like, I mean, I can kind of go, but there's a maturation that I feel like was almost instantaneous the way that like when I watch movies about royalty and like, I mean, the one that comes to mind is the crown with queen Elizabeth. And I distinctly remember the episode of when her father died and she was a teenager and she had to face her coronation. And there's this transformation of self from the girl to the monarch. Now I am not a monarch, (laughs) but, but like there, but there's something in that archetype that I actually am experiencing. Like, this might come up more, but one of the harder things I've been dealing with is, and I don't mean this to sound as despairing as it is, it really is an inquiry, but my family that I knew, the way my family was, died with my dad. That family doesn't exist anymore. So how I've related to myself and how I've related to my family died. And I'm in the inquiry and in this unknown space of like, what is that now? So there's those aspects. And I've noticed some things like also being in a family, I'm going to just go off of cultural norms. There's no son who's like now the next man of the family. It's my mom, my sister and I. And so there's, I do believe in the balance of the masculine and feminine energy. And one of the things I've noticed is like my dad was a really stabilizing force in our family, like to the point that it drove us all crazy because he was like, (laughs) he did not really like like change. He wanted things to be very consistent most of the time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there was a lot of of uh, sometimes obnoxiously unwaveringness when we wanted to do something different or create something different. But like there was a real bedrock stability that he provided. And in a lot of ways, he was kind of my partner in crime in that, in like the way that he and I both both bring this solidity and this certainty and this kind of integrity to the family. And I know my mom and my sister are going to listen to this. So you guys, this doesn't have anything to do with you personally. It's my own interpretation, but is there's been this whole thing about duty and obligation and like it falling on me and who I need to be for the family and like taking on a role. And I'm so grateful that I have a, the relationship with my mom and my sister that I do, that we can do this out loud consciously and invent it for ourselves versus silently having expectations just show up. I've noticed so many expectations that are not even from 
anyone. They weren't even for my dad. I put them on myself, but yet I'm feeling them. Like I'm now supposed to take this role in my mother's life. Her life partner died. She's alone. She needs me. I have to fill in the blank. And a lot of it are things that were things that my dad did. And so I'm watching that show up automatically. And I'm, you know, my mom's amazing. And we've been talking about it would not work for her for me to operate out of obligation. You know, she does not want that for me. And she can tell when I'm doing it. So I can't even get away with it. But like it shows up. So those are some things. And then I think that the rest of the answer of how am I different or what's changed the evidence of which won't become obvious for maybe many years, but I can feel that I'm different. And then, you know, if we were going to have a three-hour version of this podcast, which we're not, is like, this is my first confront of death. And I don't know what it's like for everyone else, but this was a death I witnessed. I literally watched him die. I I watched a human being, and I'd never... I'd never experienced that before. And it's it's one of the aspects that's been the most challenging to and I haven't processed it. If I'm honest, I haven't really. I can like kind of be with it. But it's got me up against like, I mean, for a little while there when it got really dark, like July, July was rough. That was a rough month. It was like, I'm not married. I don't have kids. Maybe my sister will live as long as me, but there's a good chance that my mom's going to die. My sister's going to die. Most of my friends are going to die. Like, like it was just this like, and I actually think there's wisdom and maturity in these conversations. It, it is a rite of passage. It is a threshold of our maturation process and evolution as a human being is to now start to deal. Like one of the things that's different is before May 22nd at 42 years old. Life was a particular way where death, yeah, you know, I know people die. I mean, obviously, like, but now there's this reality and truth and experience of it that just has me like, shit. There's fear of dying alone. There's fear of like what my last 20 years of my life will look like. And, and, there's cultural stuff of like, what does it look like to generate a rich and supportive created family around me in my 70s, 80s, and 90s if my life path doesn't turn out to be life partner and kids and grandkids and what we, you know, there's that piece too. In addition to the lack of the religious script, there's also like, my life doesn't look the way our all American nuclear family life looks. And I know lots of people that have all of that and they still experience dying alone. So there's no like guarantees. No. And so you kind of, you kind of touched on that, but one of the questions we had set for this was how has your view of death changed? So outside of like kind of the view of how that impacts, you know, how you feel about the future, your view of death, is there anything else that you want to touch on that point? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's funny because it seems so obvious now, but just the finality, the reality of it, the, I mean, and I don't know, I, I'm a 80s kid. To be honest, I'm a TV kid, which I doesn't seem like I would be because there was not a lot of TV in my childhood. But if I really just just the world we are like compared to my parents, like there's been lots of television in my life. 
And on TV, people die all, I mean, literally, I don't know that we anybody just try and turn on the television and not see somebody or something die in anything, a cartoon, all the way to a major drama motion picture, right? Like it's, which has also been interesting. Having had my dad die, I had no idea how many movies and television series start out with a death as like the way they set up their whole script, their whole storyline, right? Like I'm just sensitive to it now. So I'm like, God, another one. Oh God, another one. <laughs> like, you know, it's like everywhere. And TV death is not real death. No, it's like one of the most pervasive topics in media and yet not anything that anyone's ever willing to actually discuss honestly. And I'm not promoting this show necessarily, but interestingly enough, I did just watch the Game of Thrones House of Dragons. And I don't think this is a spoiler alert. I don't know. The king dies. That was probably predictable in the storyline. What was actually really hard, even though the king in that died of leprosy and was pretty beaten up, 85% of the depiction of his death was remarkably similar with a little less of the grave Hollywood drama, right? To my dad dying of cancer. And that like actually also struck me, whoever wrote that show and wrote that last scene is somebody who's been with been with death someone who's actually watched somebody die or many somebody's die and so that one was hard i mean it was kind of a good hard it was cathartic to to witness a visual right but my point is is most of the time it's not real it's not at all the way real death is and i actually boldly am going to say i think that's a missing from our society that we've hidden death away that we've medicalized death, that we've literally numbed death with painkillers. I mean, that could be, and maybe in the future will be a whole nother topic of the death industry, like the birth industry has a lot of unhealthy, unsupportive to the human spirit and evolution process. And so much around death like birth where, I mean, I love that we have the ability to support women in so many different ways when it's medically necessary. But we also are very aware that so many epidurals are overprescribed and inducing is overprescribed and, you know, C-sections are over overprescribed. And that when midwives who were trained in the old and ancient ways are actually present that like, and in cultures where that's true, it's like 10% of all births go to C-section and 90% are, it's not required. And in other places, it's those, those numbers are the exact opposite. We are doing the same thing in death. And, you know, some of the resources I think I mentioned before, I don't know that I mentioned this one. Another book that someone recommended to me was Die Wise, Stephen Jenkinson. And it's really a manifesto and he's a person who spent his life's work being working in hospice and being with people in their last weeks to days to hours of life and he very strongly talks about what we call end of life care is often prolonging the death of a suffering person and like literally having them die longer yeah not live better. It reminds me of on TikTok recently. It's just kind of 
funny. I was still silly bringing up like social media stuff in relation, but it's really poignant. There's a hospice nurse that's been showing up on my for you page. That's been addressing this particular topic of <clears throat> we hide away death because it makes us uncomfortable. And yet it's like going to happen to all of us. And that the body has a lot of natural processes to help itself to die to, you know, it reminded me of your discussion and the earlier episodes about the labor of death. And so she has been kind of making it her mission. She has been getting videos, user submitted videos of their loved ones in the active dying phase and sharing them on TikTok and talking about it. Like this is why they're breathing like this because this system is shutting down to help this person die. Like all of it as being, helpful and she's like you know we don't even recommend that they do anything unless it's apparent that the person is in you know an abundant sense of pain or if they're extremely agitated you know they don't want them to suffer but in a lot of ways she's encouraging death to happen naturally in the same way like you said before there's been like that same yeah that same push back into letting our bodies do what they were designed to do Mm-hmm. and not not slowing it down and she and trusting the innate wisdom that. of nature and like i think in many ways my dad had one of the closest versions of that that we could get a hold of i mean we we definitely we had him on dilaudid and we were using liquid morphine and he had fentanyl patches that last week there were for sure were some medical interventions although and this is not us like I, the doctor's and hospice nurses were doing what they were trained to do, which I totally get. But there was this like, and I think I talked about this in a previous episode is like how they kept changing his pain meds and they kept saying like, well, this will make it easier for you. Like easier for me. I I don't care. I mean, th- I don't right. need it to be easier for me. I, I, right. you know, and, and, and yet I also get the lack of understanding of like like what does even a natural death look like unfortunately we do have more and more ability to like study cytokines and study the immune system and watch how these things happen that maybe there is actual like medical scientific and i do not this is not i mean this is like a new world for me but but literally witnessing it and watching my dad i mean his breathing changed and his pulse changed and how he was altered and like two days I don't remember it's a little blurry now fortunately one or two days before he died he started spiking these fevers and you know the the hospice nurses said this is normal this is natural this is part of the body going through the phases it needs to go through and like I know enough about physiology I can just only imagine like you know, interleukin six is what triggers our fevers. And it was exploding for some reason in order to alter some things in order to like, you know, and there's just so much we don't don't know about that. So, you know, my relationship to death, there's the spiritual, there's the just existential, my own life. Who am I? What do I want for myself? What do I want for my mom? And then there's this bigger thing of like the death industry, which makes my blood curdle that there's profit. There's benefit to keeping people on hospice longer term and the money that can go through the system versus people being offered even physician-assisted suicide, which I think there's way better ways of saying that, which is physician-assisted end-of-life care that is in alignment with their knowing and their choices and their, you know, all all of that. Like, I mean, I don't know that this is going to become my thing, but it could, you know? And I think, I mean, just when you shared that about 
the hospice nurse on TikTok, like that gives me chills in the best possible way. And yeah, how my experience of my dad's death would have been different, even if I had been a kid living on a farm that had dealt with chickens and pigs and cows dying and my cats, you, you know, like, like we hide death in all the ways and it just leaves us unprepared. And one of the points that Stephen Jenkinson's makes is that our refusal and absolute like ignorance to death and being with death is actually part of why we're willing to abuse the environment and the earth the way we are. That actually his stance is that the more powerful a relationship you have to the reality of death and suffering and that process of death, the more responsible we would be willing to be to take care of each other as a planet and to take care of the planet. That I get it. And it blows, you know, he he says it's actually one of the fundamental things that he thinks is why humanity is sick, that it's related. These are not my words, but they land that. for me. Yeah. Right? And so that's important to me. And, and it's like, as much as, I mean, I've experienced a deeper sense of depression, loneliness, grief, sadness, despair, forlorn. I have been looking up all kinds of words. Brene Brown says that the more accurately you can describe your emotional state, the more powerful you can be with it. So I have been looking up the thesauruses and I'm like, forlorn. I've never used forlorn <laughs> like act, but I that yeah. was literally how I felt at one point it was like this loneliness of abandonment. And it wasn't even dad. I'm not, I've never Interestingly enough, I've never been angry at all at dad for dying. That one, and I completely get how somebody could feel that way. For me, that hasn't shown up. But, you know, that's also... I think, and and I, and I have this as like a felt truth, not just an idea, and I don't know, but I, I really, in my bones... I think dad chose this. I actually think like this was pretty damn close to the most perfect way dad would have wanted to go. I mean, he maybe would have loved to not have been sleep deprived and in pain for four months before he got diagnosed. That probably he probably could have been been done without that. But what he wanted, he, he told mom when they bought the house on Lake Road, he wanted to die in that house and be taken out on a gurney. That's how he wanted to leave. He did not want to have to go into a nursing home. He did not want to have to be in assisted living. Like, and that's literally what happened. And he got to be very present and very connected with all of us right up until the very end. And, and even when I look at the timing of it, I mean, he was 77 and yeah, he could have had a lot more life to live. My dad wasn't somebody that to me spent a lot of time talking about all these things he wanted to do in the future. Many of the things he did start to generate were things that that he wanted to give to my mom. He wanted her to experience or for her to have. And for him, he loved his life and he loved what he was up to, but there, it just wasn't in his conversations. In my mom, she's like, I want to live to be 106. I got stuff to do. I got people to see. I got places that like, like she just, she's not done. And I can actually, I don't love it. I would, I selfishly personally just want my dad to be here forever. I want everyone to be here forever. (laughs) Like it just, you know, and that's that place of like, one of the fundamental things I think that is altering in me is, is a maturation that that's not how life is. It's just not how it's designed. But I've never been angry at him or upset at him for leaving. I've had some moments 
about like, if we had known he had cancer before I sold my house in Salt Lake and I might've made different decisions about that, but that's just like, I can't second guess that right. and, and who, who, whatever, they're just houses and places and I can fix all that or change it or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So before I ask the next couple of questions, I want to make it clear because we talked about like the ick of people forcing us to try to see a silver lining that you wrote these questions. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Good job. I don't want to yes. ask you this question and people think that I'm like, now let's be positive. Now that we just said that, Kendra's going to ask yeah. you. So the last two questions, maybe they'll go hand in hand. Maybe they won't. I'm not sure how you want to answer these, but I'm going to ask them together so they don't get lost which is what, if anything, has been the best part? And do you still think cancer is a gift? Definitely going to have to answer those in two parts. Yeah. God, why am I the way I am? I know I wrote that question down and I sent it to you and I was like, why am I asking this question? And then you just asked it to me and I burst into tears. So the first thing that came to mind when you asked me what is the best part is getting to know how much I love my dad. And like, it's so interesting because people have said to me and it's in the books and it's in Brene Brown's work and it's in a lot of the, the books around grief that grief is love. There is no grief without love. And the depth of the grief is the depth of your love. And that's been one of those things that I'm like, fuck you like whatever, blah, you know, like I'm just like, blah. and a very brilliant life coach, Audra Boyd, who I started working with because she was offering a grief coaching program. And I was like, I don't have any grief. And actually I didn't have a lot. I mean, it was different, different kind of losses. And I did a bunch of work with her two and a half years ago, which I'm super grateful that I actually did the work around how I grieve and how I ignore grief and how I try and hide and numb from it. Like I'd already looked at a lot of that stuff that I came in with some of those resources, but just literally you asking me that question right now, that's the best part. The best part is like also how I got to know my dad as he died. I learned things about him. I didn't really get about who he was like, God, I mean, his capacity to love and be graceful and accepting was like blew my mind. I mean, I don't know that I'm going to die as gracefully as he did. I have no idea, you know, and his love of of education. I kind of got that about him, but it was like so obvious in the dying process how many men in particular, my cousins, friends of the family, boys who are now grown men and fathers themselves came to my dad's bedside and thanked him for being the reason they stayed in college, being the reason they went to college, being the inspiration for them to go after an engineering degree they didn't think they were going to be able to get, acknowledging them for their, like so many young men showed up thanking my dad for being the one that made a difference, sometimes even despite their fathers in them pursuing higher education and starting and having extraordinary careers. I didn't know that about my dad. He was like the secret ninja of empowering people to go to college. <laughs> and and like it, it just the enormity of it all added up in that process, you know? And and 
the opportunity to honor my dad with my own life. Like there, this is, this is a new one. It's a seed planted. I, but I can definitely pour some water and breathe life into this, which is one of the thoughts that has occurred to me about how my dad still exists is very physical, which is he exists in me. I literally have his DNA. Like I am now you don't even have to have their DNA for them to exist in you either. But I do happen to have my dad's DNA and there is an opportunity for me also having to be responsible to not let it devolve into duty and obligation. And like, I now have to prove myself as Robert Rupenthal's daughter. Nope, no, no, nope. That would not go well. But like literally there is a, there is an opportunity for me to dedicate the rest of my life to my dad and have it be worth it. And sometimes when I'm not sure what the point of all of this is facing all of the death and all of the grief, like that is something that shows up for me is like, well, one point is my dad does get to keep on living like, like viscerally, literally through me as an extension. And I never had that conversation of a lineage or any of that didn't until now, you know? So that would be, there might be some other things I could look at, but if I was going to give you the answer to the best part, that's it. Thank you for sharing that. It's profound to think of it that way. Mm -hmm. Do you want to address the second question? You yeah. had at one point said yep. you think cancer is a gift. Do you still feel that way? So I want to create a little context around that in the first place, which is my experience as a healer and as a doctor and for my own process as a human being, I have witnessed over and over and over and over and over again, our culturally we assign disease as a bad thing, that it's terrible and horrible and awful and causes suffering and totally Fs us up and all of that. And what I actually see is it does come with a lot of suffering and there is a lot of struggle, but that over and over and over and over again, when people take on healing, what they have, what part of what's hard is the transformation of self that's required to heal, the giving up who they used to be to become a transformed, evolved, different more true to who they really are, more spiritual, more soulful, more purposeful version of themselves. And so one of the things I had been known to say from time to time to be a little bit contrarian to make the point is even cancer is a gift. And I will not even begin to speak for everyone else. I think this is one of those places where I get to bring in maturity. There is no one way. There is no the answer. I can still get from what I just said earlier that I think my dad, this was this was darn nearly the, de the death that he would have wanted. And then it was. And in some ways even that it was pancreatic cancer, which is like, ugh, you know, like, and part of the shock of pancreatic cancer is how most of the time we diagnose it 
right before somebody dies, whether that's weeks, months, or even a year. It's very fast moving from the point of diagnosis because the early signs and symptoms of pancreatic cancer don't look like much of anything that we would think is a terminal illness or could be. And, you know, I don't know what would have happened if somehow a year ago we decided to pursue or like what happens for some people is they stumble upon a cancer diagnosis by accident looking for something else or doing a routine colonoscopy or they had a weird pain in their side and they got a CT scan and then, oh my gosh, there's cancer, there's tumor in there, right? Like, like if that was and I don't mean this as fatalistically as it might sound, but really, if that was meant, if that was my dad's path, that would have happened. And and then he might have been one of those people who said, hell no, I want to be, I want to be the 3% that lives for five years. I want to be, those words never came out of his mouth. That, it it just wasn't, and we were listening for like what he really wanted and what really mattered to him. So, I might find a like less confronting way of saying it in the future, but I do still stand in that even this and even the gift of, I mean, given that we all are going to die and it is not a conversation, but like I've started like, not that we really get to order it up, but if I could order up how I die, like how would I want to die? And sometimes in our culture, we'll say things like, I just want to go to sleep one night and and die and wake up the next, but then not wake up the next day, which happened to one of my best friend's moms. And she had to deal with the shock of having no clue that her mom was going to die. And then it, you know, there's, I have a lot of gratitude as hard as it was that I had these six months of like, I didn't think dad was dying since January, but like we were dealing with stuff and I was noticing that like, and and I was paying more time and attention to him. And I was involved in these conversations and the intimacy and all the things we got to talk about. And then that last month, like I wouldn't trade that last month for anything other than like, if dad wanted it some other way, then I would do that. Right. So I maybe won't use that as a punchline, (laughs) but there is still a really valuable conversation in it. And I think even further is how death could be a gift. And maybe gift is even the wrong word, but death is important. It's built in. It's part of the design. And, you know, it's a rite of passage. And this is where I am grateful for some sense of of spirituality that works for me. And maybe for other people, the fact that like they live and they die and this is it and that's the end of it is freeing because they're like, I don't have to worry about anything after death. Like, I don't know what that's like. I'm not an atheist or agnostic. But for me, the spiritual sense is that dad had choice, that this was his creation, that this was part of his sacred contracts to me, his sacred contract to my mom, to my sister, to other family and friends, that he maybe part of a sacred contract was to actually be a person who died the way he did to be an example of what's possible to die with that kind of grace. And even in this series, in the podcast, and and his carte blanche permission to me when he said, tell them what happened. 
And I don't know what's going to happen with these or not. And, and it was, it was like just this deep, I knew I was going to make these podcasts and I knew I had, I had to, but not like not obligation, like from this deep calling sense inside of myself. And so maybe that's part of his sacred contract that to, you know, get to be one of these examples. That's all great. As we're kind of rounding things out, there was a question, one other question that we wanted to address, which is, why share all of this with us? Why, you know, spend three episodes talking about this with our listeners? And what, you know, what do they, what do you hope that they get out of it or do with this information? The 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 answer is, uh, like, I couldn't not. It was, it was a, it's like a, a compulsion, but like a soul calling compulsion. And some of it was just what we, you and I have created in Heal and how transparent we've been about our lives. I literally couldn't imagine skipping over the last six months and being like, whoop, I'm sorry, guys, back from the break. Like, la, la, la. Like, I just, I that would yep. be so inauthentic <laughs> and that's just not what I'm yeah. doing here. So some of it is like consistency of what I created, what you created, what we created here and in how Heal is even designed. And my experience in healing work that I've done and in transformational coaching work that I've done is that, you know, all of the advice and isms and the seven steps to this and the 10 ways to do that and how to heal autoimmune disease and how to, you know, combat fertility challenges naturally and how to, how to, how to, how to's. Mostly what actually makes the difference are human beings telling their stories that's where we learn. That's how we've learned. We've been storytellers. We've had oral tradition long before we had written tradition. And I do hope, and I also know that those of us who are willing to be completely ridiculously vulnerable and challenge ourselves, because this was not easy. (laughs) This part, actually recording the episodes, easiest part. Talking, I can talk about it. But Like since we recorded those first episodes, you know, still just barely the beginning of June, I had all of the audio recordings of dad and there were like six hours of those. And there was a morning, I don't remember, it was in July or August that I like sat down and I listened to all of them. And so it was just a couple of months after he died and like listening to every single conversation that we had had and recorded and hearing his voice and pulling out the quotes that I wanted and going through that process. And like, that was like deeply cathartic and incredibly challenging. And, and, and then getting to the point of actually crafting these podcasts, going back through them, figuring out where those quotes are going to go, listening to myself talk about, like, actually, when I went back to listen to part one and part two, to do the editing on that, that, that was, and I needed the damn deadline of like, I will not go too long without not publishing these. Cause otherwise I could have easily wanted to avoid that for a long time. So, you know, my hope is, and my intention is, is that there is a, this word comes to mind, which is namaste. Namaste is I see the light or the God in you. And there's this like 
I see the pain and I see the grief and hopefully others will hear themselves or see themselves. And I've, and I've heard that some of the, I, you know, I've only posted a handful of times on social media about my dad's death. And when I have, I've gotten at least one or two people who personally reach out to me and say, my mom just died or my dad just died. And your words captured something I felt and experienced, but couldn't figure out how to say, or didn't have the desire or the ability to, to say out loud. And so, you know, and I've already, we actually released episode one last week of this series. And I've, I've gotten some feedback from people that are like, I'm currently living what you just shared about. And the recognition that we're in the boat together, even if our experiences are different, you know, there has been this, I love all my friends and all my people and the people that have lost a parent. It's been really great to have them that have walked this path, you know, which I can imagine the same for you when you're with somebody who's also had a miscarriage and, you know, there's just something about the people that have been on. And one of my, I might've said this in another episode, but one of my dear girlfriends, her daughter died at age 13. And she talked about with me early on, she said, look, I know the neighborhood you're in. I don't know the house you're dwelling in, but I've been to the neighborhood you're in. So if you ever need to borrow a cup of sugar, just come down the street, you know? And it was like such a great analogy where she wasn't trying to say, oh yeah, I know exactly how you feel because nobody knows exactly how anybody feels in this process. Mm -hmm. But she definitely had lived on the same block. And there's aspects of where she went that I, I don't even know, can't even imagine losing a child and losing a child, you know, in their teen years that's distinct from this. But so that's my my hope and my intention is at least that people get a sense of sanity check and connection. You know, that's been a big piece. I've dealt a lot with loneliness through the last five months and my friends and the support. And, and I, when I hit rock, my version of rock bottom, where it got super dark right around my birthday in July, I knew people were going to post on my Facebook page for my birthday. Cause that's what we do these days. And I just couldn't stomach X number of hundred happy birthday. Yay. Blah, blah. I was just like, that was not where I was at. So I was like, okay, I'm going to get ahead of this. And I posted a birthday wish. And I was like, my request is actually, if you have my phone number and you know me personally, send me something personal anytime over the next three months. And I'm still getting, it's October. And I still have, like, I got a card in the mail a couple, like last week. And I have another friend who told me, she's like, don't worry, I didn't forget. I set the date out so far that it hasn't happened yet. And she's like, you know, for her, she knows that a lot of times there's this rush of attention and connection in the beginning, and then it can fall off and get really quiet, which actually... I have many friends who still, they just put a calendar occasion and they check in on me every single week. And, and one of my friends said, I'm going to do this every week until you tell me you don't need it anymore. And I was like, okay, not telling you, keep doing it. <laughs> and That's she's amazing. had a couple people in her life pass, you know? So I hope in some ways that these episodes create some of that for anyone who touches it. And also for people that haven't yet been touched by death or grief or loss in this way, that it gives, if it is some of that sharing from what it really looks like so that we can start to have that sense of those blueprints 
And, oh, I remember that one podcast I heard. And then when they're going through it or they deal with something somehow, it brings comfort or it brings peace of mind or it brings just a sense of sanity. It feels a little full circle too. kind of in the very beginning of this recording today, we were talking about that what we really need when we're grieving is for our grief to be witnessed. Yeah. And I feel like it's been an honor to get to do that with you, to get to witness your grief. And I'm going to throw an idea out there. We can cut this out if you want to. But I wonder what if like for the end of this season, for episode 13, we open the door to like witness other people's grief. Mm. Like what if we set up a Google voice number and people can call and leave voicemails where they can talk about something they're grieving and we can pull from it and stitch that into our episode. I would love it. And I also have had the thought I don't want to, like, I, my concern is like, I'm so in the middle of all of this. I'm like every episode on death. Like, no, I don't want to do that to you guys. <laughs> but like, cause I'm like, oh, there's this doctor that I met along the way who actually has a lot of graded knowledge and understanding about medical support for end of life care. And then the, the death doulas. And then I'm like this, like I could, I could do so many episodes in this world. I don't, I I promise I actually, because it's just not actually the whole point of heal, but there's a lot. And one of the other things that's come up for me is actually having my mom and my sister on the show to talk about it from their perspective and what it was for us collectively. And, you know, and I also had this, like, at some point I do want to like get on with like, we've got some really cool episodes for the rest of the season. And, you know, we're going to talk about healing business and, and non-psychedelic medicinal mushrooms and all kinds of cool things, you know, and, and it's important to have that balance in life. But I love that idea. And I think we should leave it in here as you guys coming attraction. If you made it this far all the way to the end of the episode, you're one of our true awesome fans, which I know I do know there's some people out there that have listened to every single heel episode from the beginning, every season. I swear we need to come up with like how they can submit who they are and we'll send them gifts because That'd i be just awesome. think that's so cool <laughs> you know like a badge for 20 episodes and uh you know who knows what but yes i think that's great and i think there is there is something where i am i do have a new perspective around what does it mean to heal and 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 healing death is an interesting cuz you're not getting that part the death is the death but there's there's so much he- there's another bold statement there's so much healing in death death like like the healing between my dad and my sister and the healing of my relationship with my dad and a whole nother level and healing and what the grief i'm just starting to get a sense of this but like grief has been a cleaning house like much of what i've been sad about or dealing with doesn't really have anything to do with my dad but my dad's death was like oh, and then there's also this and this and this and this regret and this about your life. And like, you know, what do I really want to do with my career? And where am I really going? And what, you know, like all kinds of things have been brought. It's the transformational experience of going through grief is bringing all kinds of things to the surface. And so I will say from my own experience, 
my dad dying and going through his death and this grieving process has been healing for me. It's forced me to, whether I wanted to or not. But I also tend to not totally close my eyes and go numb. Don't you guys worry. I've watched more Netflix. I just, yeah, one of these days I'm going to break up with Netflix, but it's not yet. But, or any season for all things. Yes, exactly. (laughs) So no, I do. I think there's some really great new tendrils of exploration that we get to keep keep going in the conversation of what does it mean to heal and and now being someone who's willing to talk about it you know bringing death into the equation well as we kind of round out this episode is there anything else that you want to say or want the people to know before we end the episode and move back into our regular season i want to say thank you to you kendra for being the listener it's so often easy to miss but the capacity of the person who listens shapes the conversation some things can't be said to some people because they can't hear it so that all these things came out of my mouth the way they did was in your listening and your capacities. I also want to thank your husband who has been a silent star through this whole, (laughs) as he often has to listen to all of these episodes as you're editing and you guys have conversations and all of that. And I just like want to acknowledge him as, as one of our silent partners and, and thank the audience and thank my listeners and thank my community and our community that is here that has been a part of the journey of heal, whether you're new in season seven and this is the first time, huh, what a place to begin. Or if you've been with us for several seasons or from the beginning, I just thank you and honor you. And this is a very important part of my passion project of who I am and what I want to contribute to life on earth. And yeah, there's, there's more awesome things to come. Well, thank you, Sarah, for allowing us to witness your grief and to experience this with you vulnerability is not an easy task to undertake especially so publicly and it's big of you to have taken that under and brought us with you and given the space for other people who are grieving or who will grieve to find community and uh now we can kind of go back to all those other episodes you were talking about that we have this season. Yeah. Yep. And I, and I, and I don't, uh, you know, we can let these things shake out because you're right. Heal is not entirely about death, but I think that you're allowed to let your experiences shape you. And I think that there is a place for really awesome episodes where we can talk to some death doulas. And like we said, it's one of the few experiences everybody will have. You know, yeah. I think it's, I th- I think our audience would welcome it too. Yeah. If I were yeah. to, to wager a guess. <laughs> yeah. They're pretty great. They're pretty mm-hmm. awesome humans. <laughs> I think so. All right, you guys. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And until we get to do it again. A very special thank you to all the people who supported my family through caring for my father before he died and caring for my mother, sister, and I since. You know who you are. We love you. For all the resources for today's show, visit sarahmarshallnd.com backslash podcast. 
Special thanks to our music composer, Roddy Nickpur, and our editor, Kendra Vicken. And as always, thank you so much for being here. We'll see you next time for the regular season of Heal. Hi, Heal listeners. It's your producer, Kendra Vicken here. Remember that phone line that Dr. Marshall and I talked about earlier in this episode where you could potentially call and leave voicemails regarding your stories of grief? Well, we did set that up. You can call that number now and share your stories with us to potentially be used in a future episode. We want to hear from you. We want to witness your grief with you. And so now there is a spot for you to share with us. That phone number is 585-454-9560. That's 585-454-9560. And you can find that number on our website along with all of our show notes. We look forward to hearing from you.